Hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for Tuesday, February 25th. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a great poet, as always, Kelly Grace Thomas is here. Uh, but first, what we like to do with these um, uh, podcasts, we like to start with a warm-up poem. And um, just one poem from, from a back issue of Rattle. And I mentioned last week's episode that we were on vacation a couple weeks ago. We went to San Antonio, Texas, and um, the hotel, the next stop um, after the hotel um, was uh, Josephine Street. So every time we'd leave the hotel, we'd get on the freeway there and we'd um, see Josephine Street. And I kept thinking of this poem by Melissa McEwen called The Girls on Josephine Street. And I haven't read it in about 10 years, but I kept thinking about that poem over and over again. And um, let's see, here it is. This is um, The Girls on Josephine Street by Melissa McEwen. The Girls on Josephine Street. Josephine Street is notorious. Everybody says it's the street where the fast girls hang. So when the bus driver yells, Josephine Street, everybody waits to see who gets off. And almost always, is the loudmouth girls in the way back. The quiet fast ones get off on the next block and walk back. I stared at them in wonder whenever my father drove down Josephine Street to get to Mr. Pizza. My mother would say, Why can't you just go and get pizza from somewhere around here? Those places got nothing on Mr. Pizza, said my father. So we'd drive down and through Josephine Street just for pizza. I'd be in the back seat, my legs tucked beneath me, looking out, imagining those high school girls slipping out of windows, struggling out of jeans, sliding beneath boys. I wanted to wiggle my way out of jeans, wiggle my way beneath dancing boys with gold teeth and minds filled with bad boy schemes, hungry for freedom. I wanted to taste, smack my lips on the fruits of independence. I wanted to be fast like the Spano sisters, riding their ten speeds down Josephine Street, hair flying behind them, their shorts so short, their sentences filled with street slang and names of boys. And that was uh, The Girls on Josephine Street. That was from Red Number 31, our summer 2009 issue. Um, and... Melissa McEwen, uh, I had to look up her bio because I haven't heard from her since uh, 2009, but Melissa McEwen's poems have been published in uh, My Poesis, Dead Mule, Mule School of South Literature, Ocho, and Rattle, and other fine literary journals. I'm glad we're included in one of the fine ones there. Uh, she's also the poetry co-editor for O&S, Poets and Artists, and this is her book. You can see it on screen, um, Saturday Pie, which includes this poem, so check that out. If you can, that's Melissa McEwen from Rattle number 31. Now, as I mentioned before, today's poet, um, it's a really great poet. She's a winner of the um, 2000, well, I don't know what year that was, 2015 maybe, Neil Postman Award for Metaphor from a poem, And the Woman Said, which is in this book that just came out, Boat Burned. Um, she's also a finalist for the 2018 Rita Dove Poetry Award. Um, and this is her first full-length collection, Boat Burned, from Yes Yes Books that just came out in January. Um, Kelly's poems appeared in Best New Poets 2019, the Los Angeles Review, a bunch of other places. Um, 
she, at least in her bio, currently worked, I think she moved to San Francisco and doesn't work there anymore, but she currently worked uh, bringing poetry to underserved youth um, as the director of education at Get Lit, Words Ignite. She's a three-time Poetry Slam champion coach and co-author of Words Ignite, Explore, Write, and Perform, uh, classic and spoken word poetry. Uh, she lives in the Bay Area now, and um, she's really a, one of my favorite poets, so it's a really a pleasure to um, have her on here now. And um, here is Kelly Grace Thomas. Um, hello, Kelly. How are you doing? Um, I did mention the bios that you were the winner of the um, first or second annual Wrightwood Poetry Slam here. <laughs> and um, everybody in town still talks about you all the time. They're like, should uh, we'd love to have Kelly Grace Thomas back. Um, so thanks so much for doing that, too, and for, for coming the next year and teaching um, do you want to start us out with a poem from Boat Burned? Sure, I would love to. And I was just going to say, I do still work for Get Lit. Oh, do you? Uh, okay. Yeah, I work remotely for them. And then I usually come to L.A. like once or once a month about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, still. Awesome. So I, I just love it way too much. So we had to work something out. Um, sure, I'm going to start with a poem from Boat Burned um, called How the Body is Passed Down. And what page is it? Don't forget to say the page it's on number. page so seven. Okay, Thank thanks. You. Yeah, I, you know, I, I thought to say that, and then I stopped myself for some reason. So, <laughs> how the body is passed down on page seven. My mother unzips the body, passes it down. The dress, tailored too tight, leaves red indentations of buttons, pressed hard as apology. My mother was still hungry, royal with fridge glow, learned that loneliness eats with its hands. My body has always been a window I cannot throw myself from. Breasts, stomach, thighs dimpled and swollen, wetted wood in a house I was born into but did not build. I see my mother's hips every time I open the fridge. Every time the fridge opens me. My cabinets stocked with shame. What a mother feeds her young. Now I know a body can haunt itself. Be a fear no one else believes in. A ghost that only says my name. That was uh, one of the first poems, uh, How the Body is Passed Down, from Kelly Grace Thomas's new collection from Yes, Yes Books, uh, Boat Burned. Um, Kelly, let me ask, you know, you are one of the, um, I always, you know, there's some poets who sort of do something and then come to poetry later in life or, um, you know, do poetry sort of as a hobby. But I think you are like like a poet's, you know, a poet's poet or something like that. You are like, you know, because you do performance poetry and your poetry on the page is like so page poetry. It's so rich with poetry and metaphor. Um, how did you get into, into being a poet? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, actually through Get Lit, I was, it was funny you said that some people come to poetry late in life. And I actually, I think I started really writing when I was 30. I'm 38 now. Um, and I was... Wait a minute, just, wait a minute. I have to cut you off. You've only been writing poetry for eight years. I do not, I do not believe that. 
<laughs> yes. And it's really funny because when I started writing poetry, uh, I don't think I even started publishing until six years ago. Oh my and when I started, you could see that I, I opened mm -hmm. up Poets and Writers and I just went to A. So my like bio used to read like Kelly Grace Thomas has been published in like Aries, Aduna, Aperion. Like I literally just started <laughs> with the alphabet. I didn't know what I was doing. Oh, wow. So what I, I just I am so shocked. I, I thought you for sure you're going to be the kind of poet who had been writing since you were five years old and always dreamed of being a writer. Uh, so what did you do before you became a poet? Like what were you doing so, for the first 30 years of your life? Yeah, so I did always dream of being in a being a writer. I, I went to school um, at Emerson for writing literature and publishing. And I thought I was going to write short stories. And as soon as I graduated, all I wanted to do was see my name in print. That was like it. You know, I was like, if I can just get my name in print, my life will be complete. So I worked at um, a really adorable, quaint, like community newspaper. And I tried to be a reporter and they were all like, you don't have the chops, kid. So I was like, what can I do? So I worked in their classified department. And I figured if I just hung out and was always there, that whenever they needed a story written, I could be like, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> um, so that worked, actually. I like moved up um, to the... I became a reporter and then became, um, uh, you know, assistant editor. And then I was like an editor of like three magazines. But I really felt super like tired at the end of the day that I had written all day for someone else. And, you know, journalism's hard. A mm -hmm. lot of times you can work really hard on a story and then an ad comes in that's worth, you know, like thousands of dollars. And they just kind of cross it out. And, and I got really tired of that. So I became a high school teacher. Um, I was like, oh, if I become a teacher, I'll have all this time to write. Little did I know. Um, <laughs> so I became a high school teacher and I taught um, I taught in, in San Diego in Chula Vista. Um, and then I moved to Barcelona for a while and I taught there. And then I came back and I came to L.A. and I was teaching in a, at a charter school. And we got a grant um, that said, well, uh, you know, they said you can apply for this grant to teach spoken word in your classroom. And I was like, oh, my God, like I would love to. Um, and it was from Getlit, which I didn't know at the time. Um, and I was at a school that was really like data and test driven and there wasn't a lot of creativity and like my writer heart was dying. Um, so I wanted to just bring this aspect of storytelling and poetry to the kids. And I was giving them a lecture one day that I was like, you know, y'all, we were going to a competition through Getlit. It was my first year with them. And I said, you've only written like one or two poems. Like, you know, how do you expect to get any better? And then I was like, oh, I sound like such a hypocrite. So I started writing with them. And that's really how I got into it. And then I decided um, I'm in Aries. So we tend to be a little extreme. <laughs> um, so I decided that I was going to write a poem a day for a year um, and post it publicly. Hmm. So if it was horrible, if it was wonderful, whatever it was. So I did that. And that was really how I got into poetry. Hmm. And I think that. Then I took some classes with Tricia Fay Hefner, um, and she taught me about submission. I mean, I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, and then the rest was kind of history from there. Oh, wow. So what did you learn about writing, would you say, from writing a poem a day for that, that at first when you sort of were doing it fresh and had no idea what you were doing, really? Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes people are so, like, precious is what they need to write a poem about. Um, that a lot of times they're like, I need to be inspired or I need to do this. Um, and I think I learned a lot about, um, just like listening to life. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it, I don't think it was until, um, 
I started really reading. So I don't, I don't have an MFA. I took one poetry class in college. So almost everything I've learned from poetry, I read from just sitting with a book and, you know, and then eventually going to like, you know, three day workshops with poets that I admire. Um, but I think I really learned how to like listen to life in a way that I always say that poetry is like yoga. Like if you don't do it very often, you're all stiff and it's hard to get into it. But if you practice every day, you can like be a a pretzel in two seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's the same with poetry (laughs) that I was hearing it everywhere. It was like coming to me. I don't know if you know that um, Naomi Shab Nye poem that it's like poems hide. They're waiting for you and your sock in the garage. So it was kind of like that. Um, and I think that I definitely became a better writer. Um, but I don't think I wasn't revising. So there's like, the, it's a different muscle to just be generating and generating and not revising it as much. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm weird cause I revise as I write. So, um, I usually will write three lines and then revise them, revise them until I feel like they're good enough and then move on to the next thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was revising a little, but yeah. It was an interesting journey. Yeah, well, that is very cool and surprising to hear. I really thought you'd been writing for so long. <laughs> that is really cool. Well, um, I should say, uh, if anybody has any questions for Kelly, um, just leave them in the YouTube chat window if you're watching live right now, and I'll pass them along. But do you want to share a couple, maybe two more poems? And... Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I Before I read this piece, I'm going to read the title piece, which is called Title-ish. It's not the exact title. Um, it's called Burn the Boats. Um, and just like a little, I guess, um, explanation about the title. Um, Sun Tzu said when you, he wrote The Art of War, when you cross into enemy territory, you burn the bridges and you burn the boats to show that you're not going home. It's like moving forward or not going back. Um, and I think that when I heard this quote, I was really, really drawn to it because of one, the role that boats have played in my life. Um, when I was younger, I, my family went through a bankruptcy and my dad got evicted from his house. My parents were separated. We spent, um, a whole month on a sailboat sailing from New Jersey to Florida. Um, and there was just a bunch of different things that really connected to me. So through this, this book, I'm looking at femininity through the lens of boat, um, as an extended metaphor. Um, so to burn the boats, um, it's just like a theme that's prevalent in the book is for me, it was a, it was a type of burning down, um, of an identity or a gender or the way I was, um, expressing myself in womanhood and a rebuilding. So this is called burn the boats because I believed somehow it was my fault. I never told anyone how great-grandmother pinched the extra chub around my waist and asked, who will keep you now? Pointed to every empty man not at our table, told me I'm only as good as what I can please hunger, my only harbor. I carried this, a body full of broken boards and boundaries I never told anyone My first love dropped threats like an anchor, warned me what would happen if I took on water, sinking always slipped between his speech, I believed being boarded equaled boat. So I floated for seven years, subtracting what I had for another body, parts of me that couldn't fit inside his hands. My first love never let me use his front door. Instead, gave me a dark portal to climb through. I only remember this. 
In bed, he would measure the circumference of my thighs, then beg for less. I became the smallest vessel I could steer. Every day he climbed through my story till I gathered enough distance to choose another name. I can't turn back. I strike a single match, burn myself brighter. The boats that built me smoke on shore. And should I read one more? Yeah, read one more. Okay. I am, oh no, I forgot to say the page number. That was 89. I page. found it. It's okay. 89, thank you. <laughs> yeah, if, right. if you say the title and then and then introduce it long enough, I can find it hey, on the table of content. Go. So that works. That works. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like being sneaky about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is called And the Women Said. It's on page 100. Um, it was the winner of the 2017 um, Neil Postman Award from Rattle, which I am always forever grateful for. Um, it's called And the Woman Said, and I want to say it was part of the feminist issue, the feminism issue, because that's important to me. And the Women Said, watch as men call us lottery tickets. Watch as they cash register us into gamble, into played out combinations of sweaty bills and pocket wants. Watch as they lick their lips for that better life. Watch as they pout when we don't pay out. When the bling of our breasts doesn't make them Cheshire cat the same. When we have our own debts that gotta be paid to mirrors, to mothers, to the way our hearts traffic light in the closet after we sold ourselves whole. And the women said, Feel the way we became campfire. How we ghost-storied into this dangerous beauty. How them men can't scrub out our smoke. Our blue learned to burn slow. Stand still like the moment between begging and maybe. Feel the way that we soil into shovel. How we let ourselves be held even after a matchbox tongue misspoke our flames. Even after we told Flint, you don't live here anymore. The women said, feel how we are not open fields waiting for their strike. They cannot bury us deep. Call us things of war and be surprised when we landmine. That was And the Woman Said from uh, Kelly Grace Thomas's new book, Boat Burned. And that's a good, I mean, that's the perfect segue poem because one of the things I wanted to ask you about um, was how you come up with metaphor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we have the Neil Postman Award for Metaphor, which we do every year. Um, and um, it's because Neil Postman in, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, has a really elegant chapter talking about how the metaphor is an organ of perception and um, how important it is to understanding the world and to having, you know, new, new meetings and new sort of revelations. It, it all happens through metaphor. Like we understand the world around us through metaphor. And so we made this, um, this award to explore and sort of honor people who were great at making metaphor. But the craziest thing is we read through the issues um, every year 
trying to find the the metaphor award winner and it, there are far fewer actual metaphors in poems than you would think and um but your your books or this book is just full of metaphor as is that poem but um i wrote down a few as i was going by so like we have um history is a dirty ocean uh, my body has always been a window i cannot throw myself from um, hope is the loneliest house on the block um Worry, this is an extended metaphor where worry is a dog, but worry pisses on every flower. Um, <laughs> like, where do you come up with this stuff? Because you are probably, I mean, of all the, there's been like, I think, 12 Neil Postman Award for metaphor winners. And you are the most like Neil Postman Award winner person <laughs> there is. Because your, your poems are just full of these. Um, and I wonder if you like, do they come out spontaneously in the process of writing? Or do you have like a notebook full of metaphors and you just like, you know, because I, I took a class and, and Janet Fitch was on um, episode maybe like 12 or something. And she has like a file cabinet full of like metaphors and like descriptions and things. And when she wants to describe a house, she can like go to her drawer and pull out um, descriptions, which is this amazing thing. So in one hand, I imagine you like having a notebook that you just like, oh, that's a metaphor. And then you write it down. Um, or do they come out in the poems? Like, how do you come up with this stuff? Yeah, that's a good question, man. I wish I was organized enough to have a filing cabinet um, somewhere with like ideas. Uh, for me, ideas they come and go, and I don't usually like if if I can get to a phone or a notepad in time, it's great if they can stay, but it's rare. Um, I think like I really attribute the role of metaphor in my life um, to being a teacher. And that I would have to explain things so many, you know, you explain something to a teenager and they just kind of give you this look like, huh, you know, <laughs> and then you explain it again and there's like no registry. So I just had to keep on explaining and explaining in different ways. And then eventually people would like, ah, click. And I think for me that, that man metaphors take abstraction and they make it really tangible. Um, it makes it so I can touch it or I can like have a relationship um, I come up with metaphors all different ways. A lot of times I will, um, I mean, in Boat Burn, there's a lot of metaphors that come that work as touchstones that I come back to um, a lot. And then I manipulate over and over again um, to hopefully like deepen and, and can, like make the issue more complex. Um, but I have like a thing that is my writing mantra and it's called like first thought, worst thought. Hmm. Um, so like I have the theory that our brains really like low hanging fruit. So let's say you're saying, and then he was as white as, and then your brain is saying, ghost, ghost, say ghost, <laughs> you know, like, let's just go to the next line. Like your brain's like, come on, you already know the answer. Um, and for me, I always try to see how I can go like two or three from hmm. whatever that thing is to try to find something like, you know, I use the example when I teach like, um, he was as white as coconut meat, like the inside of a coconut, you know, like some something that that is also white. I mean, Google is my friend. I also I also Google like what are white things or whatever. Um, but I think a lot of times I'm pushing my brain. I go to art always um, to experience something new. Mm -hmm. And I think that surprise is really, really important in poems, um, in art, in life. So I try to surprise myself with what combinations, and it's usually just when I'm writing. Um, like I'll just be like, "Hope is, hope is," um, and like that particular one I was thinking of, um, and it's in the notes of my book. I was thinking of Pablo Neruda um, and how he says, "Like I will wait for you like a house, lonely mm -hmm. until my windows ache." 
Um, and in that poem I was talking about, it was a portrait of a roofless house um, and their relationship to hope and how, you know, how, it, it, anyway, you'll have to read the poem of <laughs> <laughs> how it was. So I try to do that. I also like, I play a little game where I, I'll write down like everyday things, um, you know, like a bus stop, a, a broom, a, a microphone, whatever. And then a lot of times I'll write down things that have to do with like my identity. If I'm really like, if I'm stuck, usually it's on the spot, but if I'm really stuck and I'm trying to just tinker around and then I'll like just draw lines and I'll try to match like, hmm. oh, my heart's a bus stop. You know, people stay for a while and then catch the next you know, root or whatever. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of times I'll just kind of like make columns because, um, because I, I work for get lit and I wrote a textbook for them. I co-wrote it with Diane, um, Louie Lane, the executive uh, director. And I also teach workshops that, um, I feel like a lot of my job as an educator and poet is to demystify stuff like metaphor, mm -hmm. um, and show how you can really kind of like make really fresh metaphors with like just making two columns and starting to match it up. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one way. Huh. And I also just try to like push my brain like in the woman said, I remember there's certain words that I really don't like. And for some reason, I don't like smile, I, like in a poem. I mean, it's fine, you know, so I remember thinking like smile, smile, like I don't like the word smile. What else can I say? Like who's famous for their smile? Oh, the Cheshire cat. So a lot of mm -hmm. times it's me just going like, okay, smile. Mm -hmm. And then going like three degrees off of what the original word is. And that's really interesting. And, and, and I never would have guessed that it was from being a teacher, but that kind of fits in a weird way. Cause um, another thing, I don't know if you're familiar with Taylor Molly has these metaphor dice. Have you seen those? Yeah. actually, Brennan <laughs> Yeah. So, so it's the same yeah. exact thing with him. Like he tries to demystify metaphor by having these dice and you roll it and you're like, how is a ladder like a tree? And then you have to do it, you know? Is, mm -hmm. is his um, metaphor dice thing. Um, but the thing about metaphor, I, and, and of course, the, just for everybody at home who might not know that, the, the first thought, worst thought, which is a really cool take, um, <laughs> is on the Allen, Allen Ginsberg quote on first thought, best thought, which is what he used to say. And um, <laughs> that's a really interesting way, you know, because you're doing the same thing, though, because I always feel like, you know, speaking of metaphor, that what we're doing, I've brought up on this, on this podcast before, but um, I think... Um, Ian McGilchrist has this book called The Master's Emissary about the um, um, bifurcated brain and how the left hemisphere is very focused and um, sort of routine and builds these maps and is obsessed with the maps. And, and the right brain is the holistic brain, which sees connections between things that the left brain can't see. And, uh, and so poetry is really the process of integrating the left and the right brain together. Um, but, but, and so, so when Ginsburg says first thought, best thought, it's because he turns off his left brain as he's writing and lets the right brain come out. And for you, like you're saying that the left brain is sort of shouting at you and you're like, shut up left brain, let me hear what the right brain has to say. So it's an interesting sort of contrast um, to, to, you know, you're doing similar things in the opposite way, which is always cool. It is. I also think metaphor is real great when like you're not ready to talk about the stuff that you need to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know that um, Marie Howe was like, she was on, on Being and she was talking about how like, people hide behind their metaphors sometimes, um, which I agree with and I'm totally okay with. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's okay. I don't need to know, um, you know, like what your mom was like from whatever. But if you say my mother sunk next to the dock, then you're like, oh, okay. Like she was trying to get, you know, it's just very clear. So I think that a lot of times metaphors can add a lot of context really quickly mm -hmm. um, that, uh, 
you know, we want to avoid an exposition or something. So metaphors are mighty. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, do you want to read like two more poems? And then there's a bunch of really good questions from the audience that we'll, uh, I'll pass along uh, after sure. you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will read. Uh, let's see. I am going to read, sorry for the pause, just, oh, uh, Lifeboat, which is on page 107. And um, this, po this poem originally had uh, an epigraph by Ocean Vuong, um, and it says, here's today, jump, I promise it's not a lifeboat. Lifeboat. Don't worry. Your mother will always live inside the house you built for her. A sailboat can only wait so long for wind. When you run aground, the buoys nod a quiet, I know. Omid loves you. Anchor the children close. At sunrise, you write about the morning after your sister almost died. Then your mother the many ways the sea tries to take. They say, tell me a story. And you never know the right way to spill. This is the one where you and your father tied yourselves to dark. Sailed all night to make it to Florida, holding only a memory of sleep. This was the biggest buy. Your legs still rock. Now in the mornings, you look at clouds you named together, how each of you chose your shape. Thanks. And I'm going to read one more that's called Small Things. And it is on page 84. Um, this poem, you should probably know uh, a couple things. One, I used to live in Los Angeles for six years. Um, still love and adore it and am back often. And I moved to Walnut Creek, which is right outside the Bay Area with my husband, Omid. Um, and Omid is Persian. It's called Small Things. The webs of Walnut Creek are all spun white. In our new town... I notice each grocery store glare. Sticky stairs follow Omid down each aisle. Still, my love keeps quiet hands. Wears kindness like salt and pepper stubble. I study him as he hums to houseplants. It's been hard for me to learn a love so gentle to believe him when he chants me close, hushes gorgeous until I fall asleep. In the morning, he scrambles eggs. Spatula in hand, he spots the lonely daddy long legs in a quiet corner. The wall weaver nestled next to light. He says, needing a home is such a small thing to be forgiven for. He lets the delicate geometry stay. I am slow 
to learn how to handle a living thing. I study Omid as he smiles at spiders. I ask him how his speech, soft as saffron, breath a net I lean against. He tells me he's been called a terrorist more times than he can count. His answer? Save something smaller. Call each a guest. Leave all doors open. Just because the world has called something poison, he says, doesn't mean we kill it. Thanks, Kelly. It's a great poem, Small Things, from uh, Kelly Grace Thomas's book, Boat Burned. Um, some really good questions from the audience here. Um, Beth Williams um, asked, did you... <laughs> Do you know Beth? Okay. Yeah. She's also <laughs> she's, a great poet. <laughs> yeah, she has a good question. Uh, did you write poems specifically for this book with a metaphor in mind, or did it happen by chance? And that was something I was wondering while we were while I was reading the book too, because so many times books in this, or I mean, boats in the sea, uh, and water, sort of as metaphors come up. Were you sort of meditating on the the, the overarching theme, or did they just like spontaneously come out and then um, you know you put them together? So I was meditating on the theme of just womanhood in general. Um, and I think I probably thought about it a lot. I thought about it a lot in my relationship to my own body, to gender, um, to how the women around me who raised me felt about themselves and how is that re reflected. And it came about in a really weird way. So I was at a Korean day spa called Hue Spa in Koreatown in Los Angeles. And if you're not familiar there at, at Korean spas, you take off all your clothes and you go and lay in, you know, saunas and sweat and stuff. Um, and I was taking off my, my clothes and I thought, what if I was something besides like a human underneath this? And I was like, I would be a boat. Like, I just like said it to someone like, I'll have like a large fry, you know? <laughs> and then so I sat down and I wrote this poem <laughs> called The Boat of My Body and it just kind of tied everything together. I mean, my first word was boat. I've spent a lot of time on boats. Um, and I think that that um, my dad moving to Florida and our family kind of, what, it was already a little broken up. My, my parents are very close, but it, that was like the official breaking up. So I thought that a lot of the, um, the themes of gender, of family, came together through kind of this lens. So after I wrote this poem, The Boat of My Body, I was like, hey, maybe I'll write another poem about boats. And then I just didn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it came about. Um, I think that I think that I, um, I started with a lot of poems that were about a lot of different things. But of course, you know, they say poets are really like obsessed with two things like and then death. Um, so I think that, you know, I was obsessed with all of this and asking why do I feel how I feel um, for a while. And I think now that I really just kind of like decide I'm writing on a theme and write on that theme pretty heavily. Hmm. Well, uh, Juan Wynn says, uh, wow, I feel like I really have to have this collection. And I agree. No. Um, Alexander Umlas is here, who you might know. Um, and she says the mm -hmm. whole book is a sort of a boat. A metaphor in itself. I'm wondering how the book's cover came about. I love the cover, and I did too. It's a great cover. Where did this come from? Thank you. Um, so I was looking for covers. So my publisher, KMA Sullivan, who's brilliant from Yes Yes, um, 
she was saying, you know, I was like, oh, we're going to have a boat burning. We're going to blah, blah, blah. And she was like, like a cover should invite the reader in. It should not be a summary of the book. And me, this is my first book. I didn't know much. So she was like, you know, I want you to find um, some photos that really move you. Um, and I started just Googling, you know, woman, water, boats, all of these things. And I looked at art for hours and hours. And I would just, you know, I put like 30 of the shots that I wanted into a file. Um, and KMI and I looked at the first round and she was like, I think it could be this one. And I was like, no, I don't think that that's strong enough. Um, and then I found this by Laura Zankul, who is a Lebanese photographer. And actually, if you look on YouTube, um, that there she has like a video of how she did this shoot with a girl in a tank, like diving. It's very interesting. Um, so I saw this and then I followed her on Instagram. Um, and I was just so taken with the, the idea of this girl is underwater, but she's coming up and there's so much, there's so much about the domestic, um, and dresses and all of these things in my book. And I loved that it looked like the chandelier was rocking, like she was on a boat. Um, and there's a poem, one of the opening poems in my book, Malde the Barkman, which is like the feeling when you get off a boat and you keep on rocking. So, so much of it, I was just like, this, this is it. Um, and she was hard to track down and I was really scared. <laughs> I wasn't going to get it because <laughs> she was like in Europe being a cool photographer, uh, you know, but, but eventually got it. So yeah. So I, it was literally me just Googling images because mm -hmm. I had a vision of what I wanted, but you know, I just had to put in the hours to find it. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah, well, it really is one of the best covers. And uh, it's funny that you describe it, though, because that's exactly what we do with the chat books. I just Google and I like make, you know, sample covers. And then the ones I don't hate, I show to the poet. And then we go back and forth. And that's kind of how you have to do it. Probably everybody does it the same way. Um, yeah. Um, David Cook um, says, your poems often invoke and evoke the body. Uh, what Ooh. parts of the human body do you find yourself writing about? And what parts still wait in the wings? Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, he's got good questions. Uh, yeah, so I think that I write a lot about things that are particularly attached to womanhood, um, breasts, thighs, things that things that are areas of, of target, whether it's pleasure or punishment when it comes to women. I think that women, um, I think that everyone has way too much criticism about their body and how it looks, but I think women are supremely the target of that. Um, I think that I write about the stomach a lot um, as well. It's really funny that you asked that. Um, my, I feel like I've inherited a double chin. Like my family just think we don't have strong jaws in general, right? So if you're even, I have been, you know, very thin in my life and still kind of had a double chin. So I've never really, I wrote one poem about that. I was at a, uh, in a workshop with Sam Sachs and he had us do a prompt of like, what do you have unfinished business with? Um, so I think that I am writing a lot about double chin. Um, uh, my husband and I are currently trying to have a family. I've been writing a lot about uteruses, um, and all of the stuff that, you know, there's like organs and parts of your body that you don't really even pay attention to until, you need them. And I think this is how we treat the body that we don't pay attention to it. And then we start demanding things from it. Um, and you know, I get it. Why it fights back. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> um, here's a follow up from, from David Cook again. He says a large part of silence is enforced by shame. Uh, what specifically do you now celebrate that you used to feel obligated to shame? Oh, 
That's great. So I think that um, in celebrations, I think in terms of how I, I relate to myself and the choices of like what I make um, in terms of like servitude um, are a lot less. So I think I celebrate a lot more of my independence um, and I'm less apologetic. Um, but I think in terms of just like around shame in general um, and silence, I came from a family that was like presented as a very happy family and we were very happy. Um, but there was a lot of stuff that was, there was a lot of heartache that was never talked about. Um, and I think that now I celebrate more of the heartache than I used to. Um, when this book came out, I said to my mom, you know, I'm scared that I'm going to write things and hurt your feelings and I'm scared you won't love me the same way. Um, and she said, no, like, it's okay. Like we all process a different way. And you know, you're not the same person you were a year ago and neither am I. So my mom and I, we were going, my whole family went to Las Vegas for an Elton John concert. And we were in the car together, just my mom and I, for eight hours. And she said, I want you to read the book out loud to me. And I want you to read every poem and we're mm -hmm. going to discuss it. And it was really amazing. I mean, I think that I got stories that, of things that happened when I was little too young to know, but I could feel, you know, a lot of times I could feel the sadness, but I didn't know where it came from. So I think in terms of like what I'm celebrating, what there's no silence around is more relationships to my family, like talking more openly mm -hmm. um, about things like this. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, have you did? Would you say it was a like the the poems like helped you connect and were productive for your relationship with your with your mother? Absolutely. I mean, I think that like she was. I mean, I would like write poems, and she was like, "Oh, that's interesting," because what really happened was, mm -hmm. or I can I know why you're saying that because what I never told you was. Um, so absolutely, I felt like we were so much closer. I felt like we really understood each other. It was incredibly, incredibly healing. I grew up in a household with three women. All of us had eating disorders, all different eating disorders. No one talked about it. I mean, and now I, I really openly talk about these things because I also, I work with young people and I want to be a model of um, the behavior that I want to see, you know, and I don't really think that silence is much. Mm -hmm. I mean, meditation silence is different, but... <laughs> You know, I think that, um, you know, Dostoevsky said that so much um, suffering comes into the world because things left unsaid. Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer of that conversation heals. Yeah, that's really interesting to, to think of poems as a, you know, a key to, to healing uh, between, you know, between people is something that doesn't really come up that much. But, but yeah, that can definitely work. Um, uh, before we read a couple more poems, I should just say, um, if, you, if you're enjoying this, please click the like button or um, subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet. No matter what platform you're watching this on, give it a few stars. Um, if you're uh, watching on iTunes and all that stuff. Um, yeah, do you want to read a couple more poems, Kelly? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm just looking for the page number. So it's interesting, just like along that li those lines, um, that I really think in terms of healing, um, for me, this book was written in an effort to heal myself, but also to heal the women around me um, and the way that they looked at themselves and their bodies um, and just like giving away their power. Um, so this poem is kind of about that. It's for my mother. Her name is Letty. Um, it starts with an epigraph by Aracelis Germay, and the epigraph reads, we must build houses for our mothers in our poems. And this is called The Houses I've Built. Oh, and what page? It's on page 49. Sorry about that. The Houses I've Built. After school, I did what any girl might. 
cursed algebra, snuck in a smoke, thought about the bodies that raised us, the blackouts and parties. I gave myself away for an ugly swig of eyes. Mom, I can't blame you for these walls. The weight of the word wife always so heavy, but I want to be more than what I please. I am learning to say no, to build my own roof, crying and you ask about Omid first, worry he has left me, worry each meal will have an empty seat that looks like him. You gave too much, gave your life away to man or memory. Mom, I built this book for you. Tell me a kitchen table secret. Let's heirloom each other instead, turn shame to sanctuary. This is more like love. Please know, I have always named you saint. You are beautiful with or without him. But let me speak this sadness, build these poems. I will keep saying no. There will still be joy. We bloom a January flower. Every daughter is owed these words. Even you. Especially you. And that was um, The Houses I've Built mm-hmm. from uh, Kelly Grace Thomas's book, Boat Burned. Do you want to read one more? Sure. Um, I'll... Two more, two more. But, but sure. one more right now. Okay, yeah. Um, So uh, this is called, it's on page 23, and it's called Where No One Says Eating Disorder. When I was young, I pretended we weren't sick. Three women, three rooms, the body, a dark teacher. My sister studied evacuation tried to expel it all, greedy with knowledge she wouldn't let the stomach outfact her. My mother hoarded everything inside, bunkered her body so no one could leave it again. I took almost nothing. My mother changed the subject when I cried at each bite, found a backpack full of diet pills, told me I wasted my money trying to disappear. She didn't know how to heal the quiet between us, starved for food, men, attention, its own meal, the small gods we let control us. We were so hungry for anything to love us back. And that was Where No One Says Eating Disorder by uh, Kelly Grace Thomas from Boat Burned. Um, Kelly, one of the things that, that I wanted to ask about that hasn't come up yet, um, yeah. you're a really good performer of poems. Um, and, you know, do, you know, being a slam coach and, um, you know, winning the Wrightwood Poetry Slam. Um, but do you have any advice for people as far as, you know, if, you know, you've written your book and you put, the, you know, and you put the poems together and you like the poems. Do you have any advice for performing them? Yeah, I mean, there's so there's so much advice. It's great to read from a book. Um, when I first had a book, I would sound a lot clearer, 
a lot of times when I'm working with people, they kind of like swallow or mumble their words. Um, so those are like three big things that I would say are helpful. Well, those are great. Hopefully everybody got them because for the first time in um, um, the Rattlecast history, my, my computer froze and the call dropped for a second. So I don't know how much was buffered and how much people got of that, but, um, but it was good advice if they did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I have to re watch it back on um, replay and see how much of that actually came through. I'm kind of curious. Do you want to summarize it again in 15 uh, seconds? Yeah, 15 second elevator pitch for that. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So tonal dynamics, you have to talk like how you speak, speed it up, slow it down, make it sound human. Um, two, eye contact, get the book or the page, you know, bring that barrier down between you and the audience. Um, and three, make sure you articulate. So hit the the consonants really hard and speak clearly. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kelly. <laughs> and for everybody watching at home, I have a new computer on order that will this 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 um this problem will not happen again. Um, usually it's it's never been that bad where we actually drop, but sometimes it buffers a little bit. Um, mm. So so um, Alexis Roan Fancher is here, and oh, she asked um she where I gotta find it again, but she asked um about your young adult novel coming up. Mm. Um, she'd like to hear more about it. Let me see if I can here she she says tell us tell us about your your YA thriller. So eager eager to read it, Kelly. So uh, yeah, wow. what, what's that about? So it's called 10,001, um, and the premise is that uh, a virus hits the United States um, and basically, well, it hits the world, and we only have enough provisions to save a number of people. So the, the concept of it is, like, who do you save and how do you, how do you save these people? Um, so they set up, like, a quarantine colony, and they give a test to people and they say we can only take 10,001 people. Um, and we open on 20 years later um, 20 years later to, to create like homeostasis in the colony, um, there can only be 10,001 people at all times. So every year you have to take a test to see if you will live or die. If there's babies born, then some people have to go. Um, so the, the novel opens up on, um, you, the first test is on your 18th birthday, um, of two characters who have taken the test. Um, gotten a perfect score and the dictator type character was like you need to tell me how you cheated um, and it's a series of them you know it's layer upon layer of them taking down corruptions and lies and falsehoods uh, and it's a wild ride should be a lot hmm. of fun so I'm, I'm about halfway through um, and uh, and I getting back to it as soon as I can <laughs> well that's unfortunately really timely with the coronavirus um, you know that we're, right? we're sort of in the in the sites of the barrel or whatever you'd say um um what do, what do you think is different about writing you know a book of poems versus a, a novel oh so much i always say that poetry is like an affair like you can go have an affair with a poem and flirt around you know whatever and then leave and and it's like one page it's a mini world and then when it comes to fiction i say it's like a marriage you got to remember like what you said, did you mean it? You got to go back. You got to like make good on all your promises. So poems, they're a lot more quick. Um, and I think like, I think a poem is the, the fastest way to go quick and deep in terms of experience or emotion. Um, and with, and they are, they're, they're many worlds that you're building, right? It's like a universe on one page, but all the questions that someone would have about that world that's the act of writing a novel that you have to answer all those questions as well as get 
fast and deep with the emotions and care about characters um, and care about what they're going through. So I, I think they're really, really different. Novels take so much more discipline and so much more time, um, but they're really fun. I'm also a screenwriter, um, so I really like writing in other genres. Um, I write romantic comedies um, with my sister, Kat Thomas, and uh, we actually won uh, Best Feature, Comedy Feature at the Portland Comedy Film Festival which is cool. That's awesome. Um, and it's funny because um, in the interview in the current issue of Rattle that just came out, Kim Adonizio uh, was the interview and she goes into great length about how she is never writing a novel again because it's so hard. Um, it and, is so yeah. hard. And randomly, I'm, I'm taking a class with Kim right now. Oh, are you? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, because <laughs> she teaches in Oakland mm -hmm. um, and I'm living in Walnut Creek. So I heard about the rattle issue that, you know, as a tribute. But she just said she was like, I'm never I mean, she was like, I when we came in, she's like, I'm done. I'm not going to do a novel, you know, um, and I've already <laughs> written one. Um, so I've like gotten through the experience um, and I wrote a very literary novel. And I think now I'm looking to write more of a commercial novel. But you have to be so, so disciplined. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I think, she, you know, it's like work. And then you realize poetry is not like work or, you know, I'm, I'm grossly paraphrasing her, but she said something like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I can see how that, you know, you have to sit down every day to uh, keep it going. You really do. Um, well, there's a little bit of time left. You want to read one last poem to close it out? Sure. Absolutely. So I'm, um, I'm going to read a poem that's called Replay. Um, it's on page 51, um, and it's a Sistina. For those of you who are not familiar with Sistinas, um, the same six, same six words repeat at the, as the end of uh, each line for six stanzas. Um, and I don't feel like – I feel like I've talked a lot about the body, but not so much about uh, my experience on boats. Um, so this is a, an intro to it. It's called Replay. It started with silence. A coastline ate through me, salt or song spilled me into the sail. I tried to write an honest goodbye. Stanzas splintered like oar or father. For 30 days we sailed together apart. Shoved inside, I swallowed storm. A part of me never knew water, just a body. Silence craves any word for God besides. Father, the deeper I drink, the heavier the song. Now the ocean only means goodbye. A patchwork of stanzas and troubled sails. I warn myself, don't write about family. I whisper, sail away. Let childhood drift apart, but a sailboat is the slowest goodbye. A leaked lonely. The four of us in our cities of silence, I scribble small mutinies. My words, weight, water, bloated, a song. I release the anchor lines of mother, daughter, father. The ocean must miss someone too. Father, did you know the sailboat would turn throat? A rusted, ready song. These dirges I can still smell in the dark a part of home that won't stop sinking. And the silence. How many times will I frame this goodbye? Please believe me. I only wanted to be good. By now, I've sacrificed the many names for father or family. I gulped these ships of silence. I was raised like a sail, pulled like a sheep, fraying apart our history 
reeking with song. My mother swears this is not a sad song. These things happen. My pages or years too long a goodbye. My hands are itchy too. Ache, a part of every landscape I pen. Lonely, the only wound I can father. Every line I write luffs like a sail. They ask what happened. And I sink with silence. I song the sometimes. Every time a man walks out, I call him father. Goodbye, a hungry seagull that won't stop calling my name. The sail, like the story, is filthy with holes. Silence is another kind of wind. It was Kelly Grace Thomas um, with her poem um, Replay. Replay from uh, boat burn and that's a great poem to end on because that is that last what do you call the last do you know the the, the word for the last stanza on an a, envoy um, an envoy an envoy an of envoy. a interesting yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well oh. that 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 last stanza with a um i song the sometimes uh, silence another kind of wind that's a perfect poem to end on because it is so rich with the metaphor that your poetry is full of um thanks so much for joining us kelly grace thomas and uh thanks Thank so much for sharing you. your book i hope everybody goes and picks up a copy Thank you so much, Tim. It was such a pleasure. I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah, so, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for the questions. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, have a great night. Thank you. You too. Bye. Yes, that was Kelly Grace Thomas uh, with her book, Boat Burned, uh, from Yes, Yes Books. Um, now we're going to move on to the open mic portion of the show. If you would like to join us, um, let me... Uh, the phone number is uh, 818-850-7727. And uh, if you'd like to join us over Skype and have your video on screen too for the uh, video version of the broadcast. Um, use Rattle Poetry. Just send me a chat message and I will check my chat message, which I haven't yet, but uh, no one's chatted, chatted me up yet. But send me a chat message to Rattle Poetry and um, if I see it, I will reply and say that you're, um, you're lined up and then we'll put you on. Um, but now every week we have this new feature which we've been adding uh, which is the a prompt, and Megan, Megan's been writing a prompt every week, uh, and then both me and Megan are writing poems, uh, and you're definitely welcome to write poems too and send them in. You can email them to openmic at rattle.com or use the open mic category on Submittable to send these in. Make sure you send them by Monday night because I check uh, Tuesday morning to prepare the show notes, um, so I might not see it if you send it in the afternoon too close to the show. But um, but if you do, send and please share your poems and let's all participate in poetry together. I'm trying to get back. You know, Kelly Grace Thomas mentioned um, how I think she called poetry like yoga and you have to keep your, your muscles limber and stuff. My muscles are so not limber. I haven't been writing poems regularly in um, a very long time, really 10 years. Like my book came out and my daughter was born and um, I have a son now, too, and I'm sort of more of a father and working on Rattle. I don't write very much anymore. And it really makes me sad because I think um, writing poetry is um, really important for the soul. That's why we do what we do. And um, so I want to participate and I want you to participate. So please do uh, do that and participate in this prompt. So here you go. last week's prompt was an undiscovered constellation. And the rule was uh, must be no longer than 280 characters. So Twitter length, basically. I guess that's how many. At some point, they switched from 140 to 280. 
And um, that was a boon for poets, I'm, let me tell you. Um, so, so here's my poem, uh, written uh, like an hour before showtime, as has been the case. But, you know, it's better than nothing. Now, um, my poem is about, I think you say, um, I think it's not Beetlejuice, but, but Betelgeuse? Betelgeuse? I think that's how you're supposed to say it. Um, it's not like the old um, campy horror slash comedy movie from back in the day, Beetlejuice, but it's Betelgeuse. And uh, so the interesting thing, uh, this this idea of the undiscovered constellation, I was thinking about um, Betelgeuse, which is uh, the right shoulder of Orion. And if you don't know, um, it's a red, um, what do they call it? A red, like a supermassive star and they only last about a few million years, and then they supernova. And there's the theory that it might be supernovaing right now, uh, because the because um, the light has dimmed thirty percent over the last couple months. And um, so what it would do is collapse into itself and then explode. And um, it would explode with the brightness of the full moon. So if it actually does explode, and we get the supernova. It'll be like there's an extra full moon, which is Belge uh, exploding. And so I was trying to think of like what Orion would look like without Betelgeuse. And um, I couldn't think of anything. It looked maybe like a Humboldt squid or something. So uh, anyway, here's what I came up with. This was my poem, um, Betelgeuse. Or Betelgeuse. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. There's some weird way you're supposed to say it. Maybe we'll just, we'll just call it Betelgeuse. Let's call it Betelgeuse. So Betelgeuse. Happiness hangs like a club above the one-armed hunter the thousand suns of his shoulder, of his missing shoulder, only light, his only eye lost on the bull. So it's a short, I'll read it again. This is Beetlejuice. Happiness hangs like a club above the one-armed hunter. The, sun, the thousand suns of his missing shoulder, only light, his only eye lost on the bull. And that was my poem. Uh, Megan always writes her poems on Thursday, well ahead of time. And, um, and she, hers always are always better than mine. But that's the way it goes. Uh, this is Undiscovered Constellations. And there's an epigram. A group or cluster of related things. No two patients ever show exactly the same constellation of symptoms from the Oxford Dictionary. That's the epigram. This is Undiscovered Constellations. In this waiting room, I name them all. Woman can't move. Man doubled over in the hall. Tilt your head. A pile of medical bills. Squint your eyes, a geometry of pills. Weeping child, moaner and chair. Connect the dots, contrast and compare. That was Megan's poem, um, Undiscovered Constellations. And it had to be Twitter length, and that, that's about 280 characters. So was mine. Let's see. So next, the next poem we have is, these are all short. Uh, which is why we have a little more than, than we've had before. This is Brenda Kamarinsky. And uh, here's her poem, City Stargazing. And maybe we'll play it twice. Or maybe she reads it twice. Let's see. My name is Brenda Kamarinsky. I live in Billerica, Massachusetts. And this is my micro poem for this week's prompt. City Stargazing. I point to the only star visible. Look, it is the unicorn constellation. I point to the only star visible. 
Look, it is the unicorn constellation. Ah, that's a good little poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Brenda Kamarinsky. Uh, next up we have, this is Chris Beaver uh, with her poem, Each of Us a Glittering Galaxy. Here's Chris Beaver. My name is Chris Beaver. I'm a retired elementary school teacher who has returned to writing poetry. I live in the sublime Pacific Northwest of Washington State. Each of us a glittering galaxy. Turn your heavy head too suddenly or rebound from a jolting blow and discover a constellation flickering like fireflies. Claim it with a clever name like Corona Minus. We all ignite neural sparkles in the astronomical scheme of being. Thanks for the opportunity to write and share my poem. Thanks, and that was um, Chris Beaver with her her poem, uh, Each of Us a Glittering Galaxy. And uh, Chris Beaver enjoyed teaching elementary students and creating classroom curriculum for 39 years. Her poems appeared in Ergo um, and Spindrift and also Poets Respond on Rattle pretty recently. Um, and Tumor poems appeared in Indolent Books' What Rough Beast Project. Let's see. Next up is Richard Chetwind. And he has an undiscovered constellation. So unlike everybody else, he only has one. An undiscovered constellation. Here we go. An undiscovered constellation any poet would love to find in all the blackness as it is on earth and in the heavens within. And then to give it a name, bestow upon it a zodiac attitude so all those born beneath its sign stay in line as gravity commands and do no more earthly damage than a wave to a beach. Poets discover constellations every time they put pen to paper. That was Richard Chetwind, who lives in Poland and Florida and teaches literature and travel writing in Holland. So um, Poland, Florida, and Holland. So he must definitely be an expert in travel uh, and writing, too. Thanks so much for sharing that, Richard Chetwind, an undiscovered constellation. Uh, here we go with... Um, Oh, let me see. Before we do that, I wanted to try. We have one more uh, poem. I'm going to see if this will work. Um, because um, David Cook, who, if you're a regular, you'll know David Cook's name. Um, he sent a video for the first time. I'm going to try to play it. I have to play it in my browser. We'll see if this works. Um, but if so, this is David Cook uh, reading his prompt poem. Here we go, David. Hello. I'm... David Cook from Portland, Oregon, reading my poem inspired by the Rattlecast prompt to write a tweet-length poem about undiscovered constellations. Now, the title of this poem comes from two words that I learned while writing this. And so if you don't know the definitions, I'll go over them because I did not know the definitions when I started this poem. Nolapara's bathos. Nolapara is a woman who has not produced viable offspring and 
It doesn't have the negative connotations of spinster, um, mainly because it hasn't been used very much. And bathos is a sense of unintentional anticlimax resulting from a change from the sublime to the trivial. Nullaparo's Bathos Below her tear-wet thighs lost stars in a bowl of crimson swirl. Constellations undiscovered in treatment. Pools, landfills, our oceans hold. Named and unnamed. Unsoiled souls. Inviable and inviolate. We're trying to think falling stars. They're not just burning rocks with wishes on them. Thank you. Awesome. That was David Cook. And I think that worked. So thanks so much, David, for sending it that way. And, um, you know, recording it by video ahead of time with a really good microphone, too. Very cool and, and really nice poem. I learned one of many things I learned today. I learned a bunch from Kelly Grace Thomas and I uh, learned two new words from David Cook. So thanks so much, David. Um, now, next week's prompt. Next week's prompt by Megan is President Trump goes to the arcade. And the bonus suggestion is make it a villanelle, no pun intended. So President Trump goes to the arcade next week. Uh, let's see what you can come up with with that. I'm looking forward to it. If you don't know what a villanelle is for the bonus suggestion, um, I, I, I printed out um, one of the most famous villanelles ever written. This is Elizabeth Bishop's One Art. Um, and you can see the first and third lines repeat as a refrain. So we go, the art of losing isn't hard to master. That's the first line of the first stanza. And then uh, that becomes the um, third line of the second stanza. And the last line of the first stanza, to be lost, that their loss is no disaster, becomes the third line of the third stanza. And we repeat that throughout the poem. Um, should I read the whole thing? I guess I'll read the whole thing. Why not? This is one art by Elizabeth Bishop. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent, the art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel, none of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. Look and look, my last, or next to last, of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't the disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing not too hard to master, though it may look like write it like disaster. So see if you can write a, a villanelle like that, but about President Trump going to the arcade. And that is your prompt for the week. We'll see what you come up with and share that next week. Let me make sure nobody has asked to um, join over Skype because it's really easy for me. It's on mute, so it's easy for me to miss. Uh, no one has. So um, that is the show for tonight. 
Before we go, let me say Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We only do this because we love poetry and we hope you do too. And if you do, please click the like button and share and follow and hit the bell. And anything you can do to spread poetry around in this, uh, this crazy world is much appreciated, so please do. Now, next week, the guest will be Rachel Custer. It'll be Rattlecast number 31, March 3rd. Um, and Rachel is just a, a brilliant poet. We've published her about three times, I think, in print and a few times um, in Poets Respond. Most famously, her poem, How I'm Like Donald Trump, is... Um, one of the poems that people talk I think it's one of the best poems, probably the, honestly, best poem we've published in Poetry Respond, and um, generated a lot of discussion, let's say. So it'll be really interesting to talk to Rachel Custer uh, next week on the Rattlecast, and hope you join us then. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week, and I will see you uh, next Tuesday. Good night.